0: Buildings On Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio.
1: Welcome, welcome to this June episode of Buildings On Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. Buildings On Air is, of course, the show where we talk about architecture and left politics, sometimes more of one and less of the other. And uh, this month, I'm very happy to be joined by Ramson Cannon, uh, one of my favorite people in Chicago. A good friend of mine. And uh, Ramson, he's a, he's a writer, an organizer, and an attorney um, working in Chicago. Ramsen, how you doing?
2: Good, Kiefer. Good, Kiefer. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, uh, happy to have you here. Um, and the reason for the season today is we're going to talk about zoning because I know that zoning is a big part of... Um, your organizing practice, but also you just recently gave a presentation to 33rd Ward working families talking about sort of uh, uh, an organizer's guide to zoning. Um, we can throw the video uh, link to that in the show notes. But um Yeah, you know, it was a really interesting presentation and, you know, we, we gab about zoning all the time. (laughs) I was like, time, time is right to get Ransom on the show here. Yeah,
2: Yeah, when me and Kiefer get together for a, for a, for a dude's night, just some drinks and talking (laughs) about zoning, you know? That's right. Yeah. (laughs)
1: It's a a real party. Yeah. Uh, Hard hitting question though, Mm -hmm. um, to kick us off. Are there any land use attorney specific lawyer jokes that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: man i know i've heard one because i used to go to cl uh continuing legal education conferences and stuff uh-huh um so i i know i've heard one but off the top of my head i can't yeah that's you know, how- i have like a i have like a cle book that like a training manual somewhere if i can find it i'll dig it out because i know it had little like cartoons
1: Uh, great yeah we can't wait and of course uh listeners i'm inviting you now to you know come up with some jokes and tweet them at the show we're uh, (laughs) at bldgs on air on twitter so you know come up with your best take take your best shot uh but, but but serious question though i mean uh i mean we talk a lot about zoning but um i think the presentation you gave was really interesting and sort of Giving a little bit of a, the background on like what what zoning is first of all, in like the broadest possible sense, but also like what like where it comes from, like what's its legal basis. So I'm wondering if you could give the listeners some of that kind of like you know, um, solid solid foundation.
2: Oh yeah, I love to do this. Um, actually, my uh, when I was in law school, uh, I wrote uh, an article for the law review. Um, I don't remember what they're formally called a note. Or something, there's some Mm -hmm. technical term for it, but uh, that was about land use and zoning. Um, So I actually did quite a bit of research on the history of it. Um, And one of the most interesting things is that there have been sort of species of zoning laws in the US going back to the colonial times. Mm -hmm. Um, So there were, for example, there were laws in I think Virginia and Massachusetts at a minimum that were like, you know, no, no property no structure residential structure could be built more than x number of miles from a church or a Mm. a, a place of worship um which is a form of zoning that was i think meant to you know serve a variety of purposes first uh, a a policy purpose of everybody should go to church but also probably more so uh, um they didn't want people too far on the outskirts Um, where they would potentially be coming up against, you know, the indigenous people who were probably not too happy about their land theft. And so therefore would strain the sort of ability of the town to, you know, uh, provide militia protection or whatever, you know, there there, there were uh, both sort of moral and uh, practical purposes for for rules like that. There were also zoning rules, this in particular in Virginia, I think, uh, uh, they weren't called zoning rules, but there was land use rules about... um, use of use of land if land wasn't being worked or developed for a purpose for x number of years um then it was considered abandoned and somebody else could basically go squat on it uh and um so there have always been these types of land use rules zoning as we understand it didn't really come about until the early part of the 20th century really Mm -hmm. Um, and Uh, when it was, it it started to um, come up in a more formalized way, may have been part of sort of progressive, uh, sort of like the progressive movement idea of like rationalizing, um, you know, rationalizing governance and rationalizing Mm -hmm. government and stuff. Um, And it's rooted in the, in some common law traditions. Uh, So the U.S. is a common law country. And that's why you know, just like the United Kingdom, we get a lot of our uh, our legal doctrines through court-made law, common law.
0: Mm.
2: Common law doctrine of nuisance uh, was a sort of conceptual source for zoning, which was basically one person's use of their property can should not create a nuisance for surrounding uh, properties, and 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 you could sue for nuisance. Nuisance is a common law. Um, it's it's a it's a common law. I'm not sure if it's a tort actually, but it's something you can sue for under the common law. You can sue somebody for creating a nuisance, a private nuisance. A nuisance usually involves, um, uh, usually involves some kind of trespass. Um, you know, some somebody's doing something on their land that's causing something to happen on your land. Mm-hmm. Um, most traditionally, it was like seepage, or you know, you're not taking care of the brush and it's coming onto my property. That would be considered a nuisance. Later on, it came to mean more things like obviously pollution and noise, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and stuff like that, those things could be considered creating nuisance. So, so these common law, um, these common law ideas kind of started, people wanted to rationalize and formalize them into the form of these zoning codes and the zoning code, um, divides the land of a city or county or some local, uh, local sub entity of state, Mm -hmm. um, into zones. Each, each of which can only be set to a particular use. Um, each zone only allows certain uses of the land in the zone. So mm-hmm. it's obviously, a, it's a land use, um, it's it's a land use tool. Uh, but um, there was a problem. Um, the The ability to create zones, the, the ability of local, local governments to create zones is rooted in the police power, what's called the the, what's referred to in the law as the police power which is the right of under common law and in general is, is the police power, sort of the, the power of the, of the government to act in the general health safety and welfare of the public. And mm-hmm. it's kind of considered an unlimited right. It's only limited by the constitutional rights of individuals vis-a-vis the police power. Um, mm-hmm. But there was a problem, a couple things. One, the federal government does the U S Congress does not have the police power. The mm-hmm. US Congress has enumerated powers. It only has those powers the Constitution give it. State governments, however, are sovereigns and do have the police power um, unless uh, they're preempted by the federal government or or they're pro- prohibited by people's individual rights.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So the problem they came across when they start, wanted to start creating zone, zone zoning codes for cities was property owners uh, resisted them often uh, because they said it violated their um, their right over their property, their right to use their mm-hmm. property as they wished, um, and they would bring what are known as takings challenges to these zoning codes. So there was a major case many of your listeners may have heard of, um, which is Ambler Realty versus the city of Euclid, Ohio, um, mm-hmm. where they challenged a zoning code in Euclid, Ohio uh, that was a, a cumulative, I believe it was a cumulative zoning code, meaning, Um, you know, this area would be zoned for residential use. This area would be zoned for commercial use. This area would be zoned for industrial use. And in each zone, you could, you could only set the land to a use up to the highest sort of intensity. Hmm. Um, and property owners sued and they claimed it was a taking of their land. And so what they, uh, were resorting to was the fifth amendment of the U S constitution as applied to the states of the 14th amendment which says that uh, you cannot, the, the, the state cannot take the land of uh, an individual except for just compensation and mm-hmm. Im- impliedly after a due process. And they said, you know, when you come in and you tell me I can't use my land in this way, you're essentially taking it. You, you're, mm-hmm. you're limiting my ability to use it. Um, the, the Supreme Court ultimately held that that type of zoning was not unconstitutional. That's where we get the term Euclidean zoning. Um, if you've ever heard that, uh, yeah. it sounds like it has something to do with geometry, but it actually has to do <laughs> with the city of Euclid. Um, <clears throat> uh, and and since then, there have been a lot of uh, a lot of different varieties of you know zoning codes have evolved quite a bit. If you go to the zone, if you go to the municipal code of any city, whatever city you're, you're in, Chicago, wherever, you look up the municipal code. You'll see that the zoning code, sometimes it's called the land development code or the planning code. Usually, it's kind of offset. Will be set off from the rest of the m- municipal code because they're so big and, and detailed. You know, um, they're almost right. universally the the most, the biggest, and most complex part of a uh, of a municipal code because they're very complicated, and it's very hard to make it's very hard to make a zoning code that will not end up getting the city constantly sued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or end up with a lot of uneven, terrible development that you don't want. So, as a result, these zoning codes are very big and sprawling. Over the years, the, as the zoning codes evolved to be more sophisticated, uh, you know, property owners would regularly sue uh, and challenge the, the some element of the zoning code either as written um, uh, or as applied. And so you, you can sue because you know, the zoning code is facially unconstitutional or you can sue because it's unconstitutional as applied to your property. Um, and uh, that that resulted in a, in a new doctrine, a new body of jurisprudence, then known as regular, regulatory takings. Um, and the, one of the key cases there is a case called Penn Central, uh, which actually result, revolved around um, application of a, a historical district around the train station in New York, Um I believe uh, they wanted to build something that was a certain height, and the, the, you know, the the uh, historical preservation rules didn't allow it. And then they said that was in effect a taking of their property under the Fifth mm-hmm. Amendment. Uh, and th- then the the Supreme Court enumerated something that's known as the Penn Central test to determine whether something, uh, a zoning regulation, is actually a regulatory taking. Um, and then there's been numerous sort of takings rooted challenges to zoning enactments ever since.
1: Yeah. It's in- it's interesting just to hear like uh, an attorney talk about zoning because <laughs> you know as obviously as architects we, we deal with zoning all of the time but it's a uh, it's like in a, it's it's in a really functional way, right? Like we're looking up the zoning requirements, the use regulations, what are the setbacks, right? Like lots of um zoning rules in Chicago pertain to like bulk and density. Uh, so just like how, how big and, and wide a building can be, um, how, how thick it can be in in other words, <laughs> you know, and like, uh, and, 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 it, and we have to work within that. Um, and you see a, a lot of it kind of boiled down to really like an economic judgment, <laughs> right? Like, which I find to be really interesting where it's like, Oh well, we can't do what we need to do. So, do we want to go through the process of getting this rezoned or getting an exemption, like a, a special use permit uh, or uh, exception in Chicago? <laughs> and like you know, like and and that's just a matter of uh, they hardly ever get denied, and it's just a matter of like, well, can the project afford to hire an attorney and can the timeline bear that process out, right? right. And um, and you know, it, it strikes me when you when you sort of listen to the history that there's like there's obviously like a lot of good reasons for zoning to exist. Um, But in, in sort of uh, practice, there's almost so many of these loopholes that are carved out that maybe have some sense, right? Like it's, it's, it's uh, makes sense to me on, on a kind of abstract level that like no code is perfect and there needs to be processes to, you know, uh, make exceptions. Um, But it always seems sort of disturbing to me that, it's really developers who are in the best position to, 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 to navigate those processes or, or, or bear the costs of navigating those processes. Um, and yeah, like, I, and I guess like the, I'd be curious for like the, 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 the sort of uh, attorney's perspective on, on that, especially um, someone with your sort of political background and, and, and also organizing and activist experience.
2: Yeah, I mean I think there's two one of the things that that draws me uh that drew me to zoning and land use and, and being interested in it is that it's a very it's a very interesting part of the law. It, it's sort of one of three areas of the law that um where it's like big policy, but then you get all this problem when it's applied to individual instances. Um and and probably the two I mean at at least of civil law, criminal law is obviously all that, right? It's like (laughs) Uh you write a law and then you apply it to a person. And then that's why you have these adversarial proceedings and and all these criminal rights, because somebody's life, it's significantly different um, Mm -hmm. because you're potentially going to put them in a cage or execute them. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: uh, And then of course it's less serious if you're just going to find them, but you know Uh, Mm -hmm. um, so, so setting aside criminal law, which is kind of its own, huge thing. Um, on the civil side, there's really two areas of law that have these that have generated these huge administrative, um, apparatuses in in city governments and state governments, but for our purposes, city governments, which is, um, public employees and land use. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because the idea is if you have a job with the city, you work for the city you have a property you potentially have a property interest in your job mm-hmm. um, the, the your employment is a sort of species of property it's or at least it's mm-hmm. come to be considered that so if you're going to be deprived of it you need to have some recourse to some kind of due process
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and that's something that has uh, that wasn't certainly always that way as you can imagine. Think about like patronage armies back in the day or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. but as civil service protections arose, they kind of arose on this theory that that people, um, and, and I don't want to mislead people. That's not always the case, and as with lawyerly things, <laughs> you know, it all depends. <laughs> and you only have a property interest in, cer- in your job in certain situations. But that's one that's one side where you see a lot of uh, administrative process. Mm. The other one is land use, and and the reason is of course because you're you know you're trying to plan a city. You know, you're trying mm-hmm. to make a, a city that uh, is har- has harmonious uses um, that can function that that doesn't um, uh, negatively impact the public health and a variety of things. I mean, you know, you're you're trying to make sure that the streets aren't too congested, right? So you're, mm-hmm. you're you you want to make sure that the uses all along a certain street don't generate too much traffic. You you want to make sure that like you're not putting a school right next, you know, right down the street from something that's going to generate like semi-trucks barreling down uh, the right. street, right? So that kids don't get, you know, crushed by cars. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to make sure that if you're building, you know, a, a residential center for, uh, for seniors, that you're not putting it next to, you know, something that, that creates a lot of noise or interfering light that could interfere with their sleep and health. Mm-hmm. So you, you have this problem to solve when you're in the leadership of the city but then your policy is constantly interfering, I shouldn't say interfering, impacting mm-hmm. um, the way somebody who owns the land wants to use it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that person is going to come to you and say, you know, I, I want to change the, the use of my land in this way or that way. And as, as a government, you have to figure out how to do that um, right. uh, in a way that that encourages uh, a, har- a, t- a t- total harmonious use right you know a-, a harmonious atmosphere or whatever uh but you can't for US anglo-american <laughs> common law constitutional <laughs> reasons you can't just impose it you have uh-huh. to give them some degree of due process because obviously mm-hmm. in the US you know, it's the bourgeois state in the Anglo-American system. Property interests are at the core of it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the state was basically created to protect property interests. So, right. you know, if 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 that's the case, um, and your zoning uh, policy is going to, in quotes, adversely impact somebody's um, property interests, you have to have you have to have a, a fair system
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, for them. Now, of course. You know, some I think people with our politics would not cry to shed too many tears about whether somebody doesn't get to build the density of luxury condos they want. You know, <laughs> right. um, th- that doesn't seem to me like a major crime. But just in just in the um, like you were saying in the abstract sense of like there are these constitutional um, there are these constitutional safeguards in place for property, and so cities have this problem of how to. How to enact general zoning policy, yeah. um, but still allow like for, like you're saying for these exceptions. You mentioned special uses. There's also conditional uses. Um, Chicago doesn't call them that, I don't believe, but maybe they do. I can't remember right now, off the top of my head. I've, I've looked in. It's, I've looked at so many zoning codes all the time. <laughs> but there's special uses. There's conditional uses. There's also variances in Chicago. They're called variations. Mm-hmm. Um, and variations are a good example of, of what you're talking about because. And Chicago variations get granted very easily uh, but in theory they're not supposed to be because a variation is basically an exception from the law that says mm-hmm. this law applies to everybody but like wink nudge you can right. get out of it. Um, and it's even written in the zoning code this way technically uh, but and historically a variation was supposed to be like extreme cases. like mm-hmm. the Paragon case of a variation is like every every lot on this block, is a rectangle, but because of some natural feature or some historical quirk, the lot on the end is a triangle. And because it's a triangle, you can't fit the setback on any of the three sides. Yeah, You know, yeah. you, you, you can't build a rectangle. You can't build a square building in this triangle without violating the setback, which is the distance from the property line to the structure. You, you'd have to violate in one of the three corners. And it's like, it's not the person who bought the property's fault really, that it's a triangle. Mm-hmm. It's because there's a river or, you know, um, who knows some, there's some re historical reason or Uh physical reason why the property is misshapen. Um, and so the person applies for a setback and is like a setback variation that says like, is it okay if on one side, you know, I'm not 20 feet from the property line and Uh and that's supposed to be like, yes, that's reasonable. But in Chicago, they just kind of grant them if if your attorney
1: asks for it. (laughs) The last variance that I had to do was, um, to make a, a because of the constraints of the of the lot in this historic building, uh, to to make a outside stair accessing a roof deck on top of a garage have a, a have a right angle in it, because in mm-hmm. Chicago there's a very specific part of the zoning code that says that they have to be straight in parallel with the building and mm-hmm. can't have any turns, and so you know uh it was kind of wild to have to go through yeah like literally have a stat it's like part of you know chicago law now that you're allowed to have this uh a weird angled staircase uh at this property <laughs> like uh which always yeah. kind of blows my mind um, right.
2: yeah but uh, um i mean so sorry I, I meandered a little bit there but, but basically to get back to your question yeah. you know I, I i think that like the 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 Due process rights of individual property owners—you um, know—it's whatever your position on them, uh, like whether those property rights should exist, they do exist. So, as yeah. as organizers, especially organizers at the city level, we are sort of—it's incumbent on us to understand the, the the legal rooting of that and and the limits to what we can sort of enact through general policy um, and the, the the challenges that come with it. I mean. Building happens in cities through private capital, you know. Right. Governments just don't have the money and resources um, to build uh, 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 everything that needs to get built. They can build some stuff, right. but they, they they don't if you know they they don't have the especially cities. You know, the federal government might, but cities don't really have the money to like be building things. We we rely on capital. Private capital investment, and private capital investment obviously, as you mentioned, wants to maximize the profit per square foot, um, right. which which means either build make it small and luxury or huge and obtrusive, right?
1: Right, right. When that's yeah, I mean that's just I'm I'm certainly not the first person to say this from the sort of left architecture world, but I mean that's that kind of seems like it's the job of an architect now in most instances, is maximizing, like doing your, your code research, maximizing how big the building can be, because that's how much money you can make off of it, and then just sort of making it pretty, right? Like, you know, just collaging materials onto this, like, abstract volume that you get from zoning regulations, you know? Um and um, you know, I'd venture guess to say that that's not why we're we're in this business. <laughs> you know, it's not why you become an architect. But uh, you know, that that's kind of the the lay of the land at the moment. Um, it's very it's 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 very troubling. I'm, i one one other thing that I wanted to ask about, sort of related, is sort of like up zoning and down zoning because it seems to me that these are kind of also. R- related to how people you know maximize their profits out, uh, off of something as they would want to upzone it right it's also related to land values the second uh something gets upzoned it, it's the, the land value like automatically increases because you can build more on it
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and then in Chicago and and I'd venture, I venture guess that it happens in other places too there's also a kind of like political pressure to kind of uh game that process or downzone things so that you know the aldermen or or the city or uh have some authority in um you know and in, in, in what what happens there, right? If someone wants to and if someone has to upzone it later, they can, you know, put the kibosh on it. Um so yeah, like I mean I, I probably should have defined those terms up zoning and down zoning a little bit, but maybe you, maybe, maybe you as the expert guy can do that and sort of talk about that a little bit.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the zones, the zones, the way are in most zoning codes, there's also form based codes, but they're not really in widespread use, but like um, zones, the way they work in most cities are uh, there's, there's sort of classes of uses and, and the most. T- the typical way to think about them is that there's industrial, there's agriculture, which,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: we don't have much of agricultural uses, industrial uses, commercial uses and residential uses. Those are mm-hmm. sort of the big categories. And then there's mixed uses. Um, and sometimes there's sort of a commercial industrial blend that's like mm-hmm. office or whatever use. Um, and within each of those residential uh, industrial commercial etc there will be intensities so like if in in the commercial c district right so th- this area is all zoned c there will be c1 and c1 allows for this many square feet you know the, the this much parking has to be provided you know buildings have to be this many square feet and these are the types of things that can go in a c like neighborhood mm-hmm. grocery or you know nail salon or whatever um, and then in c-2 it's more intense. So then it's like in these areas you can have, um, you know, uh, strip malls, well, probably not strip malls, but you know, some, something sure. a little more intense, something that generates more traffic, um, has probably greater parking requirements. Um, and then C3 is even bigger. That's where you can have like big box stores and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, uh, sports arenas even, um, you know, and, and the same goes for like industrial, you know, industrial one is usually something you would imagine that's more like, a warehouse, like small mm-hmm. warehouse. And then industrial two is whatever. And then industrial three is like pulverizing
0: <laughs> plutonium or whatever, like the highest
2: <laughs> industrial use you can think of. Um, uh-huh. And same with the residential. Residential, of course, single family homes at the bottom. And at the top is like mid-rises and high-rises, uh, mm-hmm. residential mid-rises, high-rises. So upzoning means what it sounds like usually within a certain use class. So commercial, industrial, residential, going from Dash one to dash two or dash two to dash three or dash one to dash three.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And increasing the intensity of, of the use that's that's permitted in that zone. Now the if a z- if a property is zoned, let's say R4, residential four, mm-hmm. so you can build mid a mid-rise there already. If somebody buys the property and it's already zoned that way, they can build just about anything there. Right. Right. And the city. And it's, it's what's known as by right is the term you hear a lot. You'll say, you know, the people say, oh, the, the, the developer, the property owner can do this by right because it's already zoned for it. So they can build this thing they want to build by right. There's no um, nothing stopping them. Right. And cities obviously don't like that because they want to have input on what's going to go in on a piece of property for a lot of reasons, both for good sound public policy reasons, but also because they don't want to hear it from the neighbors who are going to be like, no, you know, you're <laughs> going to put this big obtrusive thing here and it's going to be terrible for the neighborhood. Um, So it's, it's risky to have a lot of properties that are, that have high zoning designations. Um, You you don't want them. You don't want too many of those sitting out there uh, because Mm -hmm. as, as they get sold uh, you know, then then potentially, you know, ungainly or uh, obtrusive or, or um, nuisance causing things can be built on them. So what cities like to do is they like to keep the zoning designations at low for as long as they can Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that when when somebody buys the property, that person has to come to this city and say, this is what I want to build and give Mm -hmm. them a specific thing and show them, this is what I want to build. It's going to look like this. Please rezone this property, upzone it to to a more intense Mm -hmm. use so I can build this thing. And then the city can use its discretionary power over whether to do so to say, like, okay, we'll give you the rezoning, but you know, we can you maybe add some more parking or take away parking or can you instead of six stories, can you make a five stories? Can you put mm-hmm. some green space in the front? Can you put screening, you know, make sure the lights on the exterior of the building don't face directly into the right. neighboring right. property? You know, all the things that you can do. And then typically the developer, because they want to get the rezoning, will agree to some of the these conditions so that they can um, get the zoning permit, zoning change that they need. So right. cities, this was a thing in Chicago for a long time. Although it's been, it's gotten the city sued a few times, a number of times, is they would just rezone properties that they knew were about to get sold or that had fallen into disuse. They would downzone them so that the, whoever bought the property would have to come to them to then upzone them. Um, and it was basically just a political strategy to to make sure that you know they could play hardball
1: with a developer. Yeah, mm-hmm. we lost you for a second, but I think you you, you came through in the end. There, um, yeah, they they recently my my alderman uh, did this recently a, co- a couple years ago, um, and I know in Chicago there was also a thing called aldermanic prerogative, where basically it was a kind of <laughs> was it a, I don't know that it was ever like uh like strictly written into the law, but it was a sort of understanding amongst all of the city council uh, officials. That they would respect each other's sort of like motions on uh, zoning. Um, And this would give sort of aldermen uh, like almost sole authority, right, over their kind of over zoning decisions in their ward to kind of do some of these up zoning, down zoning things you you were talking about.
2: Yeah, the aldermanic prerogative still exists. Um, It it was never a formal rule. That's part of the frustrating thing for developers about it.
1: Um,
2: Aldermanic prerogative is basically the idea that all of the city council, all of your city council colleagues will defer to you over any zoning decision in your ward. So if you are opposed to a rezoning that's going to happen in your ward, you basically just have to say, I'm opposed to this. And the other alderman will not vote for it um, on the understanding that when their thing comes up, you'll do the same. Right. And developers have tried to sue over this custom. They've tried to sue over this because they, you know they say it uh, it violates their substantive and procedural due process rights because essentially it gives one person a veto over their zoning. Uh, but courts in the couple of cases I've seen where courts took it up, they're like, "What do you want us to do?" Like, right? They're legislators, and th- this isn't a rule. They don't have to listen to them. Uh-huh. Uh, they don't have to listen to the local person. They just do out of custom. And how? what can we do about it? What do you want us to do? Like, how can we eliminate that? Um, First of all, how can you even prove it? You know, like maybe they all just agree that it's a bad rezoning, Um, you know, and uh, you know, I've read some court opinions where they're like, maybe if it was if you could show certain things, we could do something. But, uh, you know, courts are very reticent to interfere with the legislative process. Yeah. And I remember
1: I remember that. I remember Lori Lightfoot put out a press release about how she was ending aldermanic privilege, but like, I always found that suspect because as you've mentioned, it's not, it's not a rule. It's not like a rule that you can delete. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The
2: the only way to get rid of aldermanic aldermanic prerogative would be to remove the city council's power over zoning. Uh The only way to do it was you would have to, you'd have to like rewrite the municipal code to make zoning a, uh, not something the city council votes on. Put it under the auspices of like a panel, a commission yeah. of experts, um, and have them decide all zoning matters.
1: Yeah, that that's an interesting question because I, I do want to come back to um, sort of how how as activists in Chicago we should think about aldermanic privilege. Uh, but I think bringing bringing up the kind of specter of expertise is is also interesting because you know I I think that. In, over the last 20 years, maybe like urbanism, like has become like, like urban design. There's like, it's almost become like an ideology, like uh, unto its own, right? Like, uh, and, and our friends of the show uh, at Failed Architecture, everyone should to check out the Failed Architecture podcast, um, have uh, been on a kind of small crusade about this of late, That that's really good. Um, but, you know, there, there's a kind of like urban policy wonkery um that is kind of like in in the air that um i kind of find deeply frustrating because on the one hand like this is stuff that we like we kind of have to know and and, and it is it's not it's not it's not um uh, uncomplex right <laughs> and so you know i'm i'm wondering like how I'm wondering very can you British really way to put that? it. It's, yeah, it's
2: not uncomplex. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I, it, you know, I don't want to say that it's overly complicated because you know you can, you can get it right, like you know, but but it's it it does take some time, um, and that to me seems different from the ways in which a lot of sort of self-styled policy wongs. Would would seek to overcomplicate something to put themselves at the at the center of it, or or, or you know mystify their own credentials to their benefit. And um, I just re- I just showed my my position on it <laughs> in a lot of ways, but like uh, I'm I'm curious I'm curious if you've brushed up against that. Um, oh, in-
2: yeah, big time. I mean, um, uh, th- there there was this you know in the in the mid in the mid aughts, um, there was this big turn towards like, uh, what's now kind of called a Yimby yes in my backyard Mm -hmm. movement that was rooted in this, um, that was rooted in this idea that actually like the big driver of inequality is actually the zoning codes Mm -hmm. because the zoning codes are exclusionary. They keep housing prices artificially high. Um, and they prevent people from moving into, um, moving into more desirable areas because not enough housing is being built there. Mm -hmm. And that's, to some extent, true. They have a point that like, you know, the zoning codes do make it hard to build dense housing. Um, mm-hmm. And they make it hard in a variety of ways. One of the ways is that because they're political processes and, and it's the bigger, the city, the kind of less, this is a thing sometimes, but, mm-hmm. but it's still nevertheless the case. Uh, you know, th- it makes it harder to build new housing because the neighbors where you you know, the not in my backyard, you know, Yimby comes is supposed to be the opposite of NIMBY, not in my backyard because the right. neighbors come out and we'll be like, don't rezone this property. We don't want like a apartment complex here because, you know, and they, they, they'll give a lot of reasons, but the core reason is basically it'll hurt my property values slash. I don't want the type of people in quotes who live in um, right. apartments to move into my neighborhood. Uh, and that's true as far as it goes. Um, and, you, you, you had you you had people like Matthew Iglesias, um, who at the time was writing for Think Progress and then for Slate, who really harped on this idea that like the problem is the zoning code. The zoning code is a huge driver in, in of inequality, and they would point to places like I think Somerset, Massachusetts, had had re- basically written a zoning code where everything was an unlawful use. They had basically like just grand they re- rewritten the zoning code so that like all the existing housing itself were all just grandfathered in. And so nothing new, no new housing could be built, right? And it's also a problem in places like San Francisco, where uh, the zoning code for a long time made it difficult to build new residential housing. And that's all true. But the problem is not the zoning code. The problem to my mind is the commodification of housing Mm -hmm. in particular, right? Like you're always going to have people fighting tooth and nail to protect their property values in every type of neighborhood. So long as the people's life's work is, uh, basically has been, um, captured in their mortgage payments. Right. Right. Uh, and they're, and they're banking on their retirement and all that stuff to be that my property is not going to lose value. I've been working for 20 years, making mortgage payments for 20 years. Um, and, my hope is that someday I'll sell this house. So my neighbor has to stay desirable. My property has to stay desirable. So Mm -hmm. long as that is, so long as that is the engine of, um, of the way people relate to housing, then, you know, you can make as many changes to zoning code as you want, but it's, there will, they will find ways to, to prevent, you know, developments that interfere with that essential dynamic. Um, and so I think people over, ironically, they oversimplified the actual dynamic, but then also uh-huh. overcomplicated the, the stuff with the zoning code and like, uh-huh. oh, you know, you have, uh, you know, the setback requirements, if you just changed it by this much and, you know, you'd be able to build this much more housing and and, and like, uh, yeah, they they, they they tried to make zoning policy this like right. um, one quick one quick fix to you know ending inequality um, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> uh, and yeah uh, city
1: officials hate this one trick yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly
2: um and and it was the part of the reason i think that the debate around it is very frustrating is because they're right to a point like uh, the, the zoning codes are too exclusionary it is right. too hard to build dense housing um in these in cities and a lot of developers would love to build dense housing because as you pointed out the more you know it's profit per square foot the more square footage you can build the better yeah. and when you can't build a lot of square footage um the alternative is to build luxury square footage so if if i can't build a lot i'll build a, a, a little but make it find a way to make it exclusive right. um and so that's true as far as it goes but like the driver of that, the reason that policy exists is because there is this, um, there is this relationship of, of individual families and individual people, um, to their, the the value of their housing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I, you know, I wonder also like, given that context, you know, the, the sort of, the object of, of, of our activism and organizing is sort of, um, um, well, it's, it's, it's human dignity, but like, you know, su- su- subset below that is, yeah, like decommodifying housing, right? Um, and so, you know, I'm wondering how activists and organizers like relate to the zoning code, if that is the sort of like ultimate ambition. And obviously like that's something that is a, a very long-term project, but like, so, so, but how how do, how do we sort of, you uh, how should we be understanding or relating to the the, the sort of zoning issues? Um, is it like a tool in our toolkits? Like, is it something that we just need to understand? To understand how the city works. Like, how, how how do we how do we relate to that if we're not going to you know um, take take the road that the wonks travel? Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think there are ways. I mean, things like affordability. The Chicago has something called the ARO, the affordability. Re- Requirement ordinance uh-huh. that basically requires, you know, if if you're going to get an up, if you're going to upzone a property, if you're if you're going to go from a less intense to a more intense residential use, uh-huh. um, and you have a more than a certain number of units that you're going to build, uh-huh. um, you have to set aside a proportion of the total number of units as affordable housing, either in rent or in, um, the sale price, if it's, Mm -hmm. if it's condos or townhouses that you're selling. Um, and, uh, you know, the proportion I think now is 20% if it's over 10 units, I I don't remember the exact number, but it it only kicks in if you need a rezoning up because Mm -hmm. that's the only way the city can sort of constitutionally impose a condition, um, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: which is known as an exaction. Um, and, the way it's enforced is through, actually Chicago did did it very well and cleverly, which is the way it's enforced is through, a, you have to record something on the deed. So mm. it's a covenant that's recorded on the deed that has to last 30 years or something. Um, and and what a covenant, a recorded covenant on the deed means is basically, it's, it's literally just like on the deed that gets filed with the county. It's just like a provision on it that says, you know. I'm sure it's like whoever if so shall own this property. (laughs) (laughs) Using some old timey legal language. But then it's like, you know, basically says this on this property, you know, at least this number of units cannot be rented out for more than, you know, this percentage of the AMI, which is the average median income of the area. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And it's recorded on the deed. The reason it's important to record it on the deed is because the deed, as we say, runs with the land rather than Mm -hmm. with the person. So it's like whoever buys it. You know, it's like when you buy a house, you do a title search or whatever, and you check the deed. Um, mm-hmm. Whoever buys it understands that they're going to be subject to this deed covenant. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that can go away to help the help the process. But I think even more than that, things like a public bank, um, mm-hmm. a, a land bank, thing, you know, imposing fees and and levies and taxes on developers that help the city buy up land um, that would fund a public bank. So that the city can um, can lend out and potentially on its own start to build its own housing, or at least build things supplemental to housing that encourage housing to get built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, schools, uh, community centers, the things that make a neighborhood attractive for housing, amenities, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. So that there's a larger proportion of public housing and quasi-public housing yeah. that are that are in attractive areas um, and safe neighborhoods. Um, you know, those things can start to chip away at how, at the degree to can, can chip away at the commodification and make housing more like a utility.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but
2: even things that you wouldn't necessarily think like, I don't know if, if, if everybody had healthcare, um, mm-hmm. if, if people's retirement, if people could retire earlier and they were guaranteed a comfortable re- retirement, um, mm-hmm. no matter where they, you know, no matter whether they owned a house or not, um if everybody was guaranteed uh, free college so that mm-hmm. you know, they, they wouldn't have to take a second mortgage to pay for their kid's college or sell their house or whatever. Um, you know, if all of these things, if, if individuals and families had these things, the, it, it would be less and less important whether your house, the, the property value of your house would be less important right. except, except for speculators. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something you can regulate just up from the top speculation. So, so I think, like, all these things have to work together. You're not going to do it just through the zoning code. I mean, right. if, you, if you abolish the city of Chicago zoning code, if you just said, like, right. okay, no more. Developers, come in and build as dense as you want. Right. Um, the idea that that would create... I mean, the, the, people would just find different ways to limit what could get built. Right. Right? through private contracts, through recording their own things on deeds, homeowners associations. Um, There's a good book. I can't remember the name of the author, but there's a good book called Privatopia that's that's all about homeowners associations. Um, And like they would find other ways to, especially the people with money, right? (laughs) Right. Private police forces. I mean, you know, there there would be a a lot of different ways to, to just reinforce the exclusivity of neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, well it strikes me also that there is a there is a case study out there in the world of a city that doesn't have zoning and that's 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 Houston. I'm sure they have some regulations in place, but their zoning code is like infamously weak and, and it's really weird because when you go to Houston you're like why is there like like a gas station next to a strip mall next to a high-rise luxury condo? Like it's just like really bizarre. But, yeah, the last time I checked, you know, um, Houston was not like, you know, an, an, an egalitarian utopia or a place where, uh, you know, uh, or an urbanist dream right. in, in any way. Certainly um, not the latter. I mean, neither,
2: <laughs> but certainly not an urbanist dream. It's not a particularly walkable city. Yeah.
1: No, and um, you know, and I and I think you know that that points to like yeah the, the underlying socio political things right like they, they, they matter. Um, one last question in our remaining few minutes. You know, coming back to that question of, of sort of aldermanic prerogative. You know, um, the the sort of uh, Chicago DSA supported socialist aldermen in 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 Chicago, um, uh, notably Carlos Rosa and Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez and. I think uh, Byron Sjar Lopez too all have sort of zoning processes in place where they're sort of using their you know city council sway and, and authority, but have, are opening up the kind of process of zoning um, um, to to their constituency in a way that I think is really interesting. Um, and I think what's also most interesting and compelling about that, is that there's a real element of, of organizing there, right? Like of organizing, and it's not just like um, it's not like a park in, Parks and Rec episode where there's like a hearing, and you know they, they've 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 found ways to make it make it meaningful. Um, and I'm I'm curious I'm curious what you think about that. Is you know is that something that we should be uh, like built, building towards and, and um, nurturing as as a kind of activist left.
2: Yeah, I mean to uh, to borrow a phrase, zoning has a class character, right? So, mm-hmm. aldermanic prerogative it, it can be both our friend and our enemy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because uh, aldermanic prerogative is really alt- the, the way that the that the socialist aldermen do it in Chicago um, is really about local control, community mm-hmm. control of zoning. Like, so you you have to go through a community process, and in some cases, the community members even vote on whether the, the alderman should support a rezoning or a special use permit or whatever. Um, and so, in that sense, alderman and prerogative is good because if the community votes for it, the alderman will support it, and then the alderman will go will tell their city council colleagues to support it, and the city council will support it. Um, but what happens when you're not in a community either that's has a good elected official or that wants to support something that should get built? So like community control is not a sort of universal, um, good, uh, it's, it's not a rule of, of general applicability because in some places we want it in other places we don't, it depends on the, uh, the political, um, and frankly, class characteristics of the place that's making the decision. Mm
0: -hmm. So
2: I, I, I think And in particular, when you think about the fact that where we want more density in housing is in, um, quote unquote, more desirable places, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, neighborhoods that have access to cultural and social amenities and and better schools or whatever, um, you know, are those places that are likely to have good (laughs) community uh, input into zoning decisions. Um, So I I think it's definitely it's definitely good to have, um, these community input processes. Uh, but we do have to consider strongly, first of all, what we mean by community, um, mm-hmm. what happens if only the sort of, um, agnostic or hostile property owners show up to these community meetings, right. um, who exist in every neighborhood. Right. Um, yeah. and they vote against it in, in larger numbers. and, and, and the fact is, especially in big cities, the sedentary proportion, meaning the the, the homeowners, um, are, are the most likely to be locally active, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, they've lived there, they own a house, so they've lived there longer, they, they're, um, they have more connection to their neighbors, um, they have more direct connection to what's going on politically in their neighborhood. And so if they're the ones who are showing up to all the meetings, that's not necessarily a good thing. So you have to have a pretty active organizing right. project and program to make sure that you're getting renters and lower income people and working class people to come Mm. to these meetings, educating them on, on zoning and and why it's important and how it works. Um, And so it's, it's a challenge. Um, It's something that it's, it's not, it's not going to be a general rule um, Mm. because again, it will vary from neighborhood to neighborhood, but at a minimum uh, involving community members in zoning decisions so long as you're also actually doing the organizing work to put people to give people a framework to understand why you want things like more housing um, why you want things like community centers uh, uh you know places for for people experiencing homelessness to uh you know rest their heads and 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 be able to get a shower and a meal and, you know, store their stuff, you know, like why you want stuff like that in your neighborhood. Um, you, you have to move people and do the political education to get them to understand why they should support those things as opposed to oppose them, which is often people's knee jerk reaction. So um, yeah, I, I think those processes are good, but I do think there needs to be a blend between local control and Frankly, non very non-local control. We should have regional and state, in my view, we should have regional and state bodies that can intervene um, and say, like, we're not gonna let this be a race to the bottom where you're, Mm -hmm. you know, putting all of the intense uses, segregating them all in these areas. We're gonna have a regional plan and say like every city, every neighborhood has to have this type of composition um, this balance of housing and commercial uses and stuff. And like, we're going to take away some of your local discretion over that. Um, mm-hmm. I think, and, and like that cuts against the principle of community control, but for the principle of balance development and, and, uh, encouraging, encouraging more housing to be built and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I caution people all the time that like, we can't hold up things like community control as like in the abstract, the solution. Because it's not, mm-hmm. in my view, I, I think yeah. that there do need to be um, there, there there do there do need to be both regional and state bodies
1: that that impose some limitations on it or guidelines. Yeah, I mean, them, sure, I mean it makes sense to me. Uh, we've got to wrap up, but I think um, I mean I think that's a good place to end on because I think it sort of illustrates the ways in which like law and policy and like you know politics and history and like you know organizing and all all of these things kind of intertwine and how that that and that's that's never going to be straightforward but the only way that we sort of work on it is like when we work on it together right like when we're we're sort of building building uh movements and and talking about this stuff and and, and acting on it right like a it's um no, no, nothing complicated ever gets solved from, you know, a simple fix from on high. Um, so, um, Ramson we'll leave it there unless you've got any last minute thoughts.
2: No, just thanks for, thanks for having me. Kiefer. It was, it was yeah, fun thanks,
1: thanks for being on the show. And, um, where can people find uh, your writing or more information about your practice?
2: Um, well, um, my practice is Canon law group. You can just find that Canon law group. Uh, if, if people have legal needs, I guess, um, <laughs> Uh, I do both employment and, and land use and environmental stuff uh, on the professional side. My writing has appeared at truthout.org, uh, Midwest Socialist, um, some stuff in Jacobin, too. Um, so, yeah, right. yeah I'm, I'm pretty so, easy to find.
1: Yeah, folks, uh, give that a, give that an old Google and uh, you won't be disappointed. Um, well, that's our June episode, Ramson. Thanks again so much. And uh, folks, we'll catch you again next month in July. Thanks.
0: This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay. And Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.